And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. I'm glad God is faithful. Uh, Where would we be? Uh, Because the longer I live, the more I realize I'm not faithful. People around me aren't faithful. People in general aren't faithful. And I'm not talking about all the time. I'm just saying that uh, if you're, you know, depending on someone, there's going to come a point when they will let you down. Okay? It's just part of human nature that we deal with on a regular basis. Uh, But Scripture tells us in more than one place that, yes, God is faithful. Faithful is actually a name that He uses to describe Himself to Moses. So we thank God for His faithfulness. Well, as I said, we're talking about a passage this morning that um, you know I'm, I've used uh, in, in, at the time of invitation uh, many times um, simply because I think it is what we would call the sinner's prayer. Now, if you've ever been to, well, I mean, a, a lot of different churches, the, the pastors and particularly evangelists will have people pray a prescribed prayer. And it will usually go along the lines of, Father, I know that I've sinned against you. Please forgive me of my sins. I trust Jesus and what He's done on the cross. And, and they lead you in this type of prayer, and, and, and they call it a sinner's prayer. Well, there, there's a lot of truth in those prayers, but that, that prayer is not in the Bible. Here's one that is. The sinner's prayer is seven simple words. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And that's what the publican does this morning. And Jesus says that he went home justified. So we're going to be talking a lot about God's mercy and about the proper way to approach God. Now, some years ago, a researcher surveyed 7,000 Protestant youth. This would be kids in the youth ministry from many different denominations and asked them whether they agreed with the following statements. Now, here's statement number one. The way to be accepted by God... Who doesn't want to be accepted by God, right? The way to be, yeah, the, the way to be accepted by God is to try to sincerely live a good life. Over 60% said, yeah, that sounds right. Statement number two, God is satisfied. How would you like for God to be satisfied with you? That, that's a good thing, right? God is satisfied if a person lives the uh, best life he can. Okay, it's a little it's a little short on what we'd call the gospel, but almost 70% of these students agreed with that statement. Third statement, the main emphasis of the gospel is on God's rules for right living. More than half agreed with that. You see, most people, including those who would call themselves Christian, think that the right way to approach God is to present their good works at the gates of heaven. All of the world's religions, except biblical Christianity, teach that we approach God through our good works. Okay? Most religions uh, recognize that, yes, God is separated from us, and our way back, according to them, is through the good works that we do. This was the main issue that split the Reformers from the Roman Catholic Church. Okay? Rome taught, and still teaches, that a person is saved by grace through faith in Christ... I don't want to, to downplay that at all. They do believe that. But not by grace through faith alone. 
Rather, in addition to believing in Christ, a person must add his own good works to preserve and to increase his right standing before God. In other words, our works accomplish things for us in God's eyes to, you know, increase our righteousness. The Roman Catholic Church spells out these official doctrines uh, in the Canons and Decrees of Trent. This was at the Second uh, Vatican Council in the early 60s, 1960. And they declared these decrees to be irreformable. Now that's a jab at the reformers who wanted to reform the Catholic Church. And they're going, no, this is what we believe and they're irreformable. They're not to be changed. And here are some of the statements from that Second Vatican Council. Number one. If one saith that by faith alone the impious, that's believers, are justified in such wise as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to the obtaining of the grace of justification. Now that's a long statement that says, if anyone believes that you are justified by faith alone, here's their conclusion. Let him be anathema. Do you know what anathema means? Anathema means accursed. Paul uses it twice in Galatians. Uh, I think it's verses 8 and 9. Okay? So their view is if you believe that you're justified by faith alone, you should be cursed. Here's another one. If anyone saith that justifying faith is nothing else but confidence in the divine mercy, which remits sins for Christ's sake, or that this confidence alone is that whereby we are justified... Let him be anathema, accursed. Again, these are things that we believe. And they say, if you believe these, you're to be accursed. Um, If anyone saith that justice received is not preserved and also increased before God through good works, but that the said works are merely the fruits and the signs of justification, which is what we say, and not a cause of the increase of the justification, let him be anathema. Let him be cursed. Now, about 20 years ago, uh, influential men such as Chuck Colson and Max Locato and even the Promise uh, Keepers movement were saying that we should set aside our differences between Protestants and Catholics since we both believe in Jesus. But as as, as long as Rome affirms these canons and decrees of Trent, to say that we are all of the same faith is to deny the gospel. That's what Paul tells us in the book of Galatians. Now, since the salvation of a person's soul depends on the believing the gospel as it's revealed in God's Word, it's of vital importance that we all understand what Scripture teaches concerning salvation. It's important to you personally so that you're clear about the basis of your salvation. In other words, how is it you came about to be saved? And it's also important so that you can explain to others who mistakenly think, like most people, that we are saved by our good works. And if you witness to a Roman Catholic, this is the issue that you're going to have to endeavor to make clear so that he can be saved. Now note note that Luke 18.9 tells us why Jesus told this parable. He spoke it to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Now he may have been targeting the Pharisees, But undoubtedly, there were many others uh, in his presence there who trusted in their own righteousness as the basis for their standing before God. The Jews tended to think that being Abraham's descendants, 
and following the law of Moses separated them from the Gentile dogs. They were a cut above. Uh, They would be accepted into heaven because of their Jewish heritage and their moral lives. But Jesus upended that view with this parable. He shows us that a couple things here, that the wrong way to approach God is by your own good works. That's not going to work. And secondly, the right way to approach God is as an unworthy sinner pleading for His mercy. Let's pray. Father, pray again that You would just give us clarity of thought, give us discernment through Your Holy Spirit to see, Father, that we really are uh, in the family of God by Your great mercy and that we bring nothing to the table. So God, do that in our hearts and we'll thank You for it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the scene is set in verse 10 there for us. Two men go to the temple to pray. One is a regular churchgoer, okay, kind of like us. In fact, he's a religious leader who has devoted himself to the things of God. The other is a selfish, dishonest, greedy man who has no qualms about ripping off his countrymen for his own advantage. And that's what tax collectors did. They were Jews who were collecting taxes for the Romans. So they would pay the Romans, but they would collect more than they needed. They'd line their pockets, Now, which of these two uh, would you expect to get through to God in prayer? Well, think again. So the first thing we see, the wrong way to approach God is by our own good works. The Pharisee represents all of those who try to come to God on the basis of their own good deeds. Uh, Keep in mind in our day, the word Pharisee, it carries with it a negative connotation, especially in biblical, you know, in Bible surroundings like here at church. When we talk about Pharisees, we go, oh, Pharisees. But in those days, right, in the day of Jesus, in that Jewish culture, the Pharisees were those who had devoted themselves most to God. They were diligent to keep the law of Moses. They were the religious leaders of the day. But Jesus uses this Pharisee as an example of those who try to come to God through their own good works. And he shows shows us four problems with this approach to God. So first, A, people who try to come to God by their good works, they're trusting in themselves. Now Luke states this plainly in verse 9. To trust in ourselves is to distrust God. The two are mutually exclusive. And a person may protest, well, I'm trusting in both God and myself. Well, truth is, he's trusting in himself, not God. John Calvin draws the line this way. Every man that is puffed up with self-confidence carries on open war with God, to whom we cannot be reconciled in any other way than by the denial of ourselves, that is, by laying aside all confidence in our own virtue and righteousness and relying on his mercy alone. End quote. Let me illustrate it to you this way. Suppose that you and I had terrible arthritis and I had been healed. And you asked me, well, what healed you? And I said, well, I drank a bottle of Pepto-Bismol every day for a month. And just as you're running out the door to buy your monthly supply of Pepto-Bismol, I shout after you, and I also took 10 Excedrin tablets each day that month. Suddenly, you're not so sure about the Pepto-Bismol, right? Did it cause the cure, or did the Excedrin cause it, or some combination of the two? Adding anything to the Pepto-Bismol distracts from its testimony that it alone cured me. 
the makers of Excedrin, they could boast that their product had a part in the cure as well. Well, think about this concerning us. Scripture says that we are saved by grace through faith. No works apart from works. That's Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Because if we add even just a little bit of human works to what God has done, we will boast in that work and detract from the finished work of Christ. To try to come to God by our own works is to trust in ourselves, even if those works are mingled with faith. I want you to note the, uh, the Pharisee's prayer. Jesus says that he was praying thus to himself, meaning he was praying so as to be heard only by himself. In other words, it was a private prayer. But in fact, he was praying to himself, not to God. His prayer mentions God once, but he uses the personal pronoun I five times. Some note that it was less a prayer in which he gave thanks to God than a congratulation which he addressed to himself. But if his prayer was truthful, he was a moral man. He was honest in business, not a swindler. He treated people fairly, not unjustly. He was faithful to his marriage vows. He was no adulterer. He was a decent man, not a greedy, selfish, unscrupulous person like this tax collector. Now, if you had to choose between a society uh, made up of men like this Pharisee or the publican, you would pick the Pharisee any and every day. Not only was the Pharisee a moral man, he was also pious, even beyond the requirement of the law. He says he fasted twice a week. Would you know that you only had to fast once a year, according to Moses? This was on the Day of Atonement. He tithed from everything he got, including his herbs and spices. That went beyond the requirement of the law. This, this guy was going beyond the call of duty. But even, even though he was an exemplary man in many ways, he was headed down the wrong road. It wouldn't get him, to, get it, it wouldn't get him into heaven because he was trusting in his own goodness, which cannot save anyone. Well, B, people who try to come to God by their good works... They're looking down on others. And again, verse 9 states this plainly. Invariably, the person who trusts in his own righteousness looks down on others who have not achieved their level of holiness. Now, he may phrase or, or couch his pride in religious language. That's what this guy does. He says, I thank you, God, that I am not like these other people. He's given a tip of the hat to God but he is still boasting in himself, in himself as being fundamentally different than the sinners that he mentions. And pride is a damnable sin. It's the original sin of Satan. It's the sin of the human race who thought that they knew better than God. It's safe to say that every sin we commit is rooted in self-exaltation or pride. Now, I was raised in a Christian home. And outwardly, I have lived a, a fairly moral life. I've only been drunk a couple of times in my life, and it was when I was a young, stupid teenager. So teenagers, don't do it. It's stupid. Just don't do it. I've never used drugs. I've been faithful to my wife. Uh, I seek to be honest even in little matters. I've gone to church almost every Sunday of my entire life. But God had to show me that my heart was just as corrupt as that of the worst criminal on earth. If I had been born to a drug addict mother in a ghetto, instead of to Christian parents who loved me and brought me up to know God, 
I would be exactly where most of the ghetto kids are. I'd be doing drugs, stealing, and possibly killing other gang members. Now, at this point in the first service, our student pastor got distracted. And he thought, since I was talking about the ghetto, that I, na- that I needed a ghetto name. So the first one he came up with, he says, I don't know, you want to call me Fat Dave? P-H-A-T, I assume. No, just fat. Okay, oxymoronic. But the one he ended up with was Q-Tip, because I got white hair. So that's my gangster name. Thank you, Tyler, I appreciate that. The truth is, if you're thinking of somehow that you are better than others, you're probably trusting in your own good works and not in the grace of God. We'll see, people who try to come to God by their good works are comparing themselves to others, not to God. The reason this Pharisee thought that he was so good was that he was comparing himself with swindlers, immoral people, and and the greedy rip-off artists. Now, we can all find those who outwardly are more wicked than we are, and we can pat ourselves on our back for our own holiness. Uh, But if we looked the other way, instead of looking for those that are worse than us, you know what? We find plenty of people who are better than us. People who actually give their lives for other people. But those who try to come to God with their own good works rarely, if ever, compare themselves with those who are better than they are. And they never compare themselves to God in His splendor, in the splendor of His just perfect holiness. I read about this guy who said that his greatest fear is that he would be standing in line at the pearly gates behind Mother Teresa. And he would hear St. Peter say to her, well, you didn't quite make it. The fact is, if Mother Teresa is in, in heaven... It's not because of her good deeds, although she did many. You line up the very best humans who have ever lived, and they all have sinned and fall hopelessly short of the glory of God. God cannot and will not tolerate any sin in heaven. So it's useless to compare ourselves with one another. God's perfect righteousness is the only standard that He grades on. Well, D, people who try to come to God by their good works, they're looking at things outwardly, not at their hearts, not inwardly before God. The Pharisee was thinking of all the good deeds that he had done, the fasting, the giving, and, and probably a lot, other, lot more things that, that he was thinking about that Jesus didn't tell us. But he wasn't looking at his heart, which was filled with pride. God looks on the heart. Do you remember... Uh, David, uh, God tells Samuel, hey, or Samuel, I want you to go anoint the new king. And he's the son of Jesse. Jesse has seven sons. And so he goes to meet Jesse and uh, he says, okay, bring your sons before me. So they bring him in birth order. Eliab is first. Eliab is a big man who's a warrior. He's older. He looks seasons and, he, and Samuel says, surely this is God's anointed. Boom. And God has to speak a truth into Samuel's heart. He says, Samuel, don't look at the outside. I don't look at the outside. I look at the heart. He is not the one. They had to go all the way to child seven. And child it was. He was a teenager, a ready-headed teenager, probably 16, 17 years old. And God says, this is the one. Right? I look at his heart. And what's David known after? Known as? 
a man after God's own heart. You see, outwardly, we can smile. We can be friendly towards someone while our heart hates them and is actually plotting some sort of revenge. Outwardly, we can give away a million dollars and everybody goes, oh, he's so generous. But God is looking on our motives uh, before Him. Did we give it to please God or did we do it to receive the applause of men? God looks at the heart. No one who honestly examines his heart before God can hope to come before God on the basis of his good works. We can clean up the outside just fine. We do it every Sunday morning, don't we? We come in here, how's life? Great, fine, everything's doing good. A song that I like that's out right now is by Matthew West. Um, and they ask, how you doing? Oh, I'm fine, I'm, yeah, I'm fine, I'm doing fine, but I'm not. I'm, I'm broken, is what he says. We say, we're fine. He says, we're broken. And I know exactly what he's talking about. Well, like I said, we can clean up our outward behavior, but we cannot clean up our hearts. Only God can do that, and He does it through the power of the new birth. That is the only thing powerful enough to change us from the inside out. And that leads to our second lesson here that's exemplified in this tax collector. Number two, the right way to approach God is as an unworthy sinner pleading for mercy. If you exalt yourself by presenting your good works to God, you will be humbled on judgment day. That's what verse 14 tells us. But if you humble yourself now before God and plead for His mercy, you will be exalted in His presence on that day. So A, approach God as an unworthy sinner. The publican wouldn't even come as far into the temple as the proud Pharisee did. He stood at some distance towards the back. He wasn't even willing to lift up his eyes to heaven. Most people, when they prayed, prayed to heaven. What do we do? We bow our heads, right? In those days, they lifted their heads, and they even lifted their hands, and they prayed, generally looking up. This man cannot do that. He even beats his breast showing his true sorrow for what he had done. But he didn't plead with God on the basis of his contrition. He didn't plead that he had now reformed his life by turning a new corner. He didn't promise that things would be different in the future. He simply said to God, well, he simply came to God as he was, an unworthy sinner. No basis or merit in himself for laying hold of God. He simply asked God for mercy. Now, we talked about this, I don't know, two or three weeks ago. If you ask for mercy, what are you admitting? You're guilty. You're guilty. If you ask for mercy, you are guilty. That's the only way any of us can come to God, because that's what we all are, unworthy sinners who deserve His judgment. We are guilty. But you come honestly and you say, God... I am a sinner who deserves nothing but your judgment. The more you grow as a Christian, the more God will show you the utter sinfulness of your heart. Charles Simeon observes, Never are you higher in God's esteem than when you are lowest in your own. Talked with Craig after the service and he's like, he says, that, that, that he said, I found that to be so true. He said, the more... You know, I study, the more I, I, I pray, the more I t- spend time with God, 
the more I realize just how much of a sinner I am. So as this person that everybody else sees, you know, they see from the outside and it looks like they're just becoming more Christ-like every day, this person feels as if they're becoming less like Christ. Because the old stuff is fluffed away long ago. Now God's in there with tweezers, picking at the heart and saying, hey, how about this right here? Can I have that too? So the closer you get to God, the closer you get to Christ and being conformed to Him, the more you're going to sense your own sinfulness. Well, B, approach God by pleading for His mercy. He simply said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Note that he approached God Himself, not, not a priest. And this is how we all must come. God is the one you have sinned against. Go directly to Him with your confession. Do you remember when Nathan was confronted by David and David ended up writing Psalm 51? And in Psalm 51, which is a psalm of repentance, David says, against you and you alone have I sinned. David went to God. We have to go to God as well. The man also approached God personally. Be, be merciful to me. He doesn't lump himself in with others saying, well, we've all done wrong. He didn't assume that he would get to heaven on the group plan because he was a Jew or because his parents had been faithful synagogue members. He was dealing with God on a personal basis. And that's the only way into heaven. You must come to Him personally. Just you and Him. Note also the publican approached God asking for mercy, not rewards based on His merits. He didn't say, be merciful to me because I'm humble enough to come and confess my sins. If you ever mention your own humility, guess what? You are no longer humble. Does that make sense? If you're talking about how humble you are, you ain't humble. That's pride. Well, and he didn't say, be merciful to me and I'll work, work hard to pay you back. Those are things that humans typically do. Right? No, he said, be merciful to me, a sinner. The Greek word translated, uh, be merciful there, it has in it the idea of propitiation. And that refers to God's wrath being appeased because the proper penalty has been paid. Now, although this man, talking about the publican, he's living under the Jewish sacrificial system, the Levitical Jewish sacrificial system. He probably didn't understand that Jesus would offer himself as the perfect and final Lamb of God for the sins of the world. I don't think he understood that, but he did know that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And yet, it wasn't the blood of bulls and goats and sheep that atoned for sin. They merely pointed ahead to what God's Savior would do in offering Himself in the place of sinners. What that whole sacrificial system did was illustrate the principle of substitution. That God would accept the death of an acceptable substitute in the place of the sinner's own death. Now, God cannot just shrug off our sins. He can't just sweep them under the rug. He wouldn't be just. He wouldn't be righteous in doing that. The penalty for sin must be paid. Now, either we pay it for eternity in hell for our own sins, or we trust in God to pay it for us through the acceptable sacrifice of His Son. In the end, to cry out to God for mercy is to trust in the only provision that God has made for the penalty of our sins. And that is the death of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Well, the good news is, number three, when sinners approach God for mercy, He graciously and instantly justifies them. Jesus emphatically states, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, meaning the Pharisee. Now, to justify means that God brings down that gavel at the judgment bench and declares not guilty. It's a forensic declaration on our behalf, a legal declaration where God says not guilty. Now, not only does it remove the guilt of our sins, whoo, what a freeing thing that is, He also credits to our account the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Jesus was the substitute who suffered the penalty of God's wrath. This publican walked into the temple as a guilty, despicable tax collector who ripped off people simply because of his own greed. He walked out of that temple righteous before God. You ask, how can that be? How how does that happen? The answer is he received a righteousness that was not his own. It's an alien righteousness. It was imputed or credited to him. Now, was that perfect righteousness imputed to him because of his works or his promise to be different? No, it was imputed to him by God's grace through faith. Did it take years of personal reformation and penance in this life and more years in purgatory to secure that righteous standing? No, Jesus said he went home that day justified. God graciously and instantly granted it. Now the word justified in Greek, it's a perfect passive participle. The passive voice means that he was acted upon by God He had nothing to do with his own justification. It came from outside of him. God justified him. The perfect tense shows that the act was accomplished in the past with continuing results. So that this publican is now in an eternal state of justification. So the great news is that when a sinner comes to God as a sinner asking for mercy, God graciously and instantly justifies him. Well, years ago, a man was about to make a purchase in a drugstore and an uh, undercover uh, agent came up and laid his hands on the man's shoulder and says, you're under arrest, come with me. And, and stunned, the man says, well, what did I do? And the detective calmly replied, you know what you did. You escaped from Albany Penitentiary several years ago. You moved west, you married, and you, now you've come back into our community and we've been watching you since you've returned. And quietly, the man admitted, well, that's true, but I was sure you'd never find me. So he says, before you take me in, can you take me to my house so I can talk to my family? And the the officer agreed. And when they got to his home, the man looked at his wife and asked, haven't I been a kind husband and a good father? Haven't I worked hard to make a good living? And his wife answered, of course you have, but why are you asking me all these questions? Well, he then proceeded to explain what had happened and that he was now under arrest. He apparently had hoped that his record as an exemplary husband and father would impress the officer. But the fact was, he was an escaped criminal and he had to return to prison. Now you, you may be a good person, a faithful churchgoer, a decent citizen of this community, but God knows the many sins of your heart. All the good deeds in the world cannot pay for the many times that you have broken His holy law. If you come into God's court on judgment day and present your good works, you will be condemned. 
But if you come as an unworthy sinner who has pleaded for mercy on the basis of Jesus Christ, who shed His blood to pay the penalty you deserve, God will declare not guilty. Make sure first that you understand and apply this personally. And then share with others the wrong and the right way to come to God. Nothing less than yours and their destiny is at stake. Let's pray. Father, again, your word uh, challenges us as it always does. Father, it's so easy for us to, I I don't know, sinner, to think about uh, the good that we have done. And Father, uh, kind of pat ourselves on the back. And in truth, Lord, any good that we do is simply being faithful to the call that you have placed on our lives. So God, I pray that you would help us to see the importance of your mercy. God, do that work in our hearts and draw us to you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a couple type of different people probably sitting out here this morning. Some of you have never come to God asking for mercy. You don't even you may not even understand that you're separated from God. The scripture's clear. Sin separates us from God. He created us. He has certain rights over us. And one of the things that He demands is holiness. Holiness simply means doing what I demand as God. Not me, God. God saying, do what I demand. And we've all broken those, we've all broken those laws. Maybe not externally. We've never murdered, but Jesus says in Matthew chapter uh, 5 that if you have been angry with your brother in your heart and you have murdered. So yes, we have all sinned. We're separated from God. There's only one thing that can bring us back together and that's uh, trusting in Jesus Christ. So you call out to mercy. Uh, call out to God for mercy. Ask Him to forgive your sins. He'll do it. Trust in what Jesus did on the cross. But you know what? It's no different for those of you out there who are Believers who've been following God, doesn't matter whether it's for five minutes or 50 years, every day we need the mercy of God. Because we all sin. We continue to sin. That's not rooted out of us until one of two things. Either we die or Jesus comes again. One of those two things, will, 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 we will be exalted into a state of righteousness and holiness forevermore. But until then, we're here on this earth and we still sin. And we still need the mercy of God. Don't ever get in the, in, the, in the habit of patting yourself on the back because you're doing such a great job. We talked about this a couple of Wednesday nights ago. Um, Kenneth Holland was sitting here. Brother Kenneth uh, is turning 92. He did not retire until he was 88. Okay? And he, worked, he was the pastor of... Um, Thomasville Road Baptist Church for 14 years from 68 to 82. He's the one that moved them out to their new campus where they're at now. Ten years after that, he worked on church planting with the Florida Baptist Convention. Then he moved to North Carolina and for the next 26 years, he was head of church planting for North Carolina. So he finally retired at 88. Now you think he's building up a whole lot of just great good... He's doing what God wanted him to do. You remember we looked at that just a couple weeks ago. When you have done your duty, don't pat yourself on the back because Jesus says you're only doing what was required. My point being, we all need mercy every day. I hope you're going to God and pulling on His mercy because He is merciful. He will forgive. 
John tells us if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's based on His mercy. Well, if you'd like to join our church, I just encourage you to come forward. We'll have a quick song of invitation. It's just as I am. Uh, I told uh, folks this morning when I was, uh, my dad was pastor of uh, Magnolia Baptist Church in Apalachicola, just a couple, you know, hours away from here. It's on the corner of 12th and 24. The buildings are still there and the sign is still there, Magnolia Baptist Church. But every Sunday we did this song, Just As I Am, and we sang all six verses. So that's a threat. No, it's not. No, it's not. It's a great song. This is exactly how the publican came that day to the temple. He came seeking God just as he was. How do we know that? Because he says, God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner. If you're a sinner and you need God's mercy, you come talk to me this morning. You guys stand and let's sing. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, CrawfordvilleFBC.com.